All right, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, if you have uh, one of our Bibles from the shelf or the table back there, it's on page 605. Now, we've paused through our series. We've been going through uh, John's Gospel together. Um, if, if this is your first time with us, we, we've been going through John's Gospel together. We've, we've paused. We started an Advent series last week called Signs of the Coming King, and it, and, and it really ties into the main theme of, of John's Gospel, which is uh, it's structured all around these seven signs that John uses to point to Christ as the King, as the Messiah, the Son of God, right? And so... Uh, uh, Jesus, at one point, we, we looked at J- John chapter 5, the, the last time we were in John, and he tells the, the Jewish leaders there, hey, you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them, but they, they testify about me. And so all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus as the Messiah who was and is to come. And so uh, that's what we want to look at as we go through this Advent series, Signs of the Coming King. Uh, Last week, we looked at Psalm 2, and we saw that the kingship of Christ is guaranteed, right? So, so everyone who takes refuge in him has a reason to rejoice. This week, we're going to see that, that what happens when the king of Judah looks to take refuge in a foreign nation instead of in God himself. And in the midst of Isaiah's harsh rebuke of this king and, a, and warning of severe judgment, there's a message of, of great hope for God's people here. This morning, we're going to see the persistent faithfulness of God to be with his people, even in spite of their constant desire to turn away from him. Maybe you're like me and you you feel this tension. I love Christ, and yet my heart's still drawn toward lesser things. But Christ is faithful. God is faithful. We'll see that this morning. So I want to pray. This is the word of God, and I want us to as James says, uh, humbly receive it and be transformed by it. So let's, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your unchanging word. We pray that as it's proclaimed, that in the power of your spirit who lives in us, that you would change us through it and that you would open uh, deaf ears and blind eyes and dead hearts that they might behold the King of kings and the Lord of lords and humbly come confessing all sin and reliance upon him and be made new and find life in Jesus. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The impact of a person's life in our lives is often more felt in that person's absence. Is it not? It's it's really easy for us to take for granted the people that God has brought near to us because they're near to us all the time. Sometimes we don't notice something until it's missing. A lot of us, uh, uh, several of us in here understand that all too well. Over this past year, we've lost loved ones. My family, we lost my nephew in in October. Many of you have lost family members. Um, Or or maybe you come from a broken home. Maybe maybe there's there's divorce or or, uh, just broken relationships, and, and the person that you loved is gone. It's easy to take for granted someone's presence in our lives, and oftentimes we don't realize the impact that they have until they're gone, until they're no longer present. We need to understand this right off the bat, though. For the believer, God is never absent. God is never absent in the life of a believer. His presence with us is guaranteed forever, but it's still easy for us to take God's presence for granted especially in times of hardship and trial. Oftentimes, we're more impacted by our present circumstances than we are by the God who is present with us in them. Oftentimes, we are more impacted by our present circumstances than we are by the God who is present with us in them. Here's what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. This is our main point. God's faithful presence with us should lead us to an ever-deepening trust in him. God's faithful presence with us should lead us to an ever-deepening trust in him. Now, since we're starting seven chapters into the book of Isaiah this morning, we need to get caught up a little bit on some background context before we focus in on our passage. From our, our series through Genesis, when we went through Genesis, we saw that God made a covenant with Abraham to bless the nations through him and one of his descendants. 
right? Last week we looked at Psalm 2 and we, we saw how God intended to keep his promise to Abraham by fulfilling it through the royal line of, of King David and his descendants. One of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever and bring blessing to the nations that God had promised Abraham. Abraham has a grandson, Jacob. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes is Judah. Judah becomes the royal family line of which David and his descendants come through. And God continues to to maintain his promise. But after David's son Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split into two lesser kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. You got a handout when you came in, hopefully. If not, there might be some more back there you could take when you, come, or when you leave. But uh, that's a, it's a chart, it's a graph that helps us understand this and helps us see when the kingdom split and see all the kings that came from that. David and his descendants, like I said, are descendants of Judah. After Solomon, there were a series of kings who, who ruled over each kingdom, and most of them were corrupt. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That, that, that's, that's how we can summarize all the kings of the divided kingdoms. And as a result, both kingdoms largely rebelled against God and turned their backs on him by worshiping false gods and looking to foreign nations for help rather than relying on the Lord. But in his grace, God's so full of grace, isn't he? In his grace, God sent prophets to these kings. Over and over and over, he sent prophets to speak to his wayward people, to confront them in their sin, to to warn them of God's righteous judgment, and to call them to repent from their rebellion and return to the Lord before it was too late. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, who we'll look at today, and Hezekiah, who we'll look at next week. Isaiah's message, just like the other prophets, was one of of judgment and hope. He predicted that Judah would be exiled. He also predicted the exile of Israel, but he's focusing on the kings of Judah. He predicted that Judah would be exiled from the promised land as an act of God's judgment, as discipline on his people against them for their sinful rebellion against God. But Isaiah also promised that God would preserve a remnant, bringing them back from exile, and then restoring them to their homeland. Isaiah said that God would send a Messiah, a king who would come, who would establish a new Israel and rule over God's kingdom on earth forever. This king would come, according to Isaiah, as a suffering servant, one who would be wounded and killed. Then he would live again and make all things new. Got any guesses as to who that is? The first five chapters of Isaiah are a sobering indictment of Judah's guilt against the Lord and a pronouncement of judgment on the nation. Then in chapter 6, we get this this beautiful and yet terrifying uh, uh, imagery, uh, uh, not imagery, but this vision from Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. So king number one of, of, of Isaiah's time over these four kings, he dies. Jotham takes the throne and then Isaiah has this vision of the Lord seated high and lofty on the throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim surrounded the Lord and declared his holiness and his glory, and the temple doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Glorious, beautiful, terrifying. And Isaiah was terrified. When he saw and he heard these things, he was immediately aware of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, and he repented. He, he confessed, Isaiah 6, 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You know what he said? I'm standing before a holy God as an unholy man with unholy people. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, I'm ruined. Immediately after that, no time wasted. Seraphim, one of them, flew over to Isaiah and touched his lips with a coal from the altar. And they told Isaiah that his iniquity was removed and his sin was atoned for. He repented and God restored him. And then God gave Isaiah, his mission. Go to these people of Judah and continue to proclaim this message 
of judgment and hope, even though they will not listen. They will continue to ignore all that you're saying until I exile them from the land. But go tell them anyway. The first king we'll see Isaiah go to and proclaim this message is to Jotham's son Ahaz here in chapter 7. So now we're at king number 3. We're going to look at this story in three parts. The predicament, the promise, and the proof. Okay? Let's look at the predicament. Isaiah 7, 1 and 2. <clears throat> this took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had, had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Now in those days, Assyria was the superpower nation. And Israel was the, was the kingdom just north of Judah because they had split, right? And then Aram was the kingdom just north of Israel. So these, these, northern, these kingdoms just on, on top of, of Judah, essentially, north, uh, are, are together. Your, your Bible might say Syria instead of Aram. The two names are interchangeable, but to avoid getting Syria confused with Assyria, we're going to stick with the CSB's use of Aram here, okay? Ephraim, again, is another name for Israel. We learned that way back in, in Genesis. Uh, those, those are interchangeable. Ephraim is a, is, another, is a nickname, essentially, for the northern kingdom. Assyria was muscling its way from the northeast and capturing territory as it pushed toward Egypt. And in an effort to resist the superpower, because he was coming through their regions, the two smaller nations of Aram and Israel formed an alliance with one another. <clears throat> the big bad bully... We gotta, we gotta, we gotta join forces, right? But then they tried to strong arm Judah into joining them against Assyria. The more, the merrier, right? Verse two is emphasizing the significance of this. Then, for the readers, when it became known, it says, "In the house of David." Now, why would, why would, why would Isaiah use that phrase? Calling Judah the house of David directs the reader to think back to God's covenant promise to preserve David's royal family line and the throne forever. Here, it looks like those things are in jeopardy, right? You have, you have Aram and you have Israel breathing down your neck, wanting you to join forces with them against Assyria, and if you don't, watch out. Aram had occupied Ephraim, it says, literally in the Hebrew, had stood by Ephraim. The two nations had joined forces, and when Ahaz and the people of Judah heard about it, it says they trembled in fear like trees of the forest shaking in the wind. It's a stark contrast, is it not, of the picture we just got in Isaiah chapter 6 of Isaiah who himself trembled when he said, my eyes have seen the king, the king, the Lord of armies. Ahaz is trembling at earthly kings. Isaiah is trembling at the one true king. But what would Ahaz do? He, he knew that he could not stand up against these two kings on his own, and he knew that he needed help. But where then would he turn to look for it? That's the question. We know this, right? He should have turned to, to who? To whom? The, the one true king, the Lord of armies, right? As a descendant of, of David, Ahaz should have the confidence that God will keep his promise to preserve David's throne. Look at your handout again for a minute. Look at all the kings. Look at all the kings from Judah that came before Ahaz. Even though the kingdom of Israel had split into two, even though all of these kings that came before Ahaz were a mixed bag of good and bad and, and ugly, God had still been faithful to preserve David's royal line in the southern kingdom of Judah. When man has done everything to destroy, God is the one that preserves right? And even though several kings before him were not great, we see Ahaz is in the line. God has preserved, and he will continue to preserve the throne because he made a promise, and God does not break his promises. 
But instead of turning to this Lord for help, Ahaz turned to the earthly superpower, the king of Assyria. Now, this story is told in more detail in 2 Kings Second Kings 16, 7, and 8 says, So Ahaz went, sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser, I'm definitely saying that right, of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the grasp of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Ahaz also took silver and gold found in the Lord's temple and, the, and in the treasuries of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a bribe. Remember Psalm 2 last week, how every king in the family line of David was called God's son because he was God's representative, God's servant to, to, to the people of Israel and to the nations. What did Ahaz tell the king of Assyria here? I am your servant. I am your son. Ahaz was defecting. Instead of trusting in the God who reduces princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth like a wasteland, Ahaz took silver and gold out of God's temple and he used it to bribe an earthly king. This is a, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. You see, the harder and the more urgent our circumstances get, the more we are tempted to ignore God's track record of faithfulness and turn to the nearest thing or the nearest person that gives the appearance of strength. When we're on a time crunch, when we feel pressed, we just start grasping. We lose sight of the God who is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble, the God who is with us because our difficulties are often more tangibly visible to us than he is. We can see what's wrong, but we can't see the God who's working in it. And so we take his presence for granted. We turn to, to trust in people and things that we can see instead of the God that we can't see. But it's in times like these that it's more important than ever to remember and trust the God who is with us. The Apostle Peter reminds us that the Lord who we cannot see, will outlast the trials that we can see. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Such a powerful picture there. Living hope, new birth through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Death is the thing that quits there. Let's keep going. And into the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You will see it. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, temporary, coming to an end. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, even though gold is perishable and refined by fire, so that that proven character of your faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We've never seen him. And yet Christ has given us this incredible love for himself. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith. It's coming, the salvation of your souls. The trials that we go through don't test the character of God. They test the character of our faith. The trials that we go through do not test the character of God. They test the character of our faith in God. And Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the reality of what's hoped for. The proof of what? What is not seen. What is not seen. God's character is unchanging, but the quality of our faith fluctuates. Right? We know this. All throughout our lives as we face trials of various kinds. Some trials it's easy to trust God in, others it's not. And yet the hope that we have is not that our faith is strong enough to get us through these trials. It's that Christ himself is. 
We're being guarded by his power, Peter tells us, until we finally see the resurrected Christ and he shows us with our own eyes the fullness of the salvation that we have in him. Listen, God may be invisible, but he is not absent. He may be invisible, but he is not absent. That's the predicament. Now let's look at the promise. Verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go with your son Shear Jashub, Jashub, definitely got that one right too, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road of, uh, to the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Be still. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Razan and Aram and the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. God told Isaiah, hey, take your son with you and go find Ahaz. Now, that may seem like an odd request at first until we understand what Isaiah's son's name means. Sheer Jashub means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. God may be invisible, but he's not absent, right? By telling Isaiah to take Sheer Jashub with him, God was sending Ahaz a visible sign, a visible representation, a visible reminder of both his judgment and his grace. A remnant shall return pointed to the reality that the exile was coming. You got to leave in order to return, right? But it was also pointing to the reality that God would preserve his people in the midst of it. A remnant shall return. God would keep his promise. Ahaz was out checking the water supply that led to the city, most likely to see if they would have enough water to sustain them through whatever battle was coming. He was assessing his own resources while ignoring the God who turns deserts into pools and dry land into springs. It's a hard thing for us to admit our weakness, isn't it? Especially when we're the cause of it. We get, we get ourselves into a bind. We look, look to our own resources and, and to try to get ourselves out of it. But that only creates more and harder work for us. Why? Because on top of because because we not only have the original problem that we still have to deal with, but we've also got uh, on top of that the the added task, this difficult task of maintaining an appearance of strength. I got it. I can handle it. But no matter how hard we try, you and I cannot muster up what we do not have to begin with. And the harder we try, the more we take God's presence for granted and the more we miss out on his ability and his resources to help us. Paul Tripp puts it this way in his New Morning Mercies daily devotional. He says, weakness is not the big danger to be avoided. What you need to avoid is your delusions of strength. When you tell yourself that you are strong, you quit being excited about God's rescuing, transforming, empowering grace. Why? Because you don't think you need it. And he goes on to say this, grace frees me from being devastated that I can no longer trust me because God's grace connects me to the one who is worthy of my trust and who will always, always, always deliver what I need. God's always able to deliver what we need because he always knows our situation even more so than we do. We think we have it covered. We don't. God knows. He knew exactly what the king of, uh, of Aram and the king of Israel were up to. They were conspiring together against the Lord and his anointed one. Psalm 2. They were conspiring together against, against the Lord and his anointed one. They, they wanted to replace the son of David with the son of Tabeel. Tabeel means good for nothing. Let's get rid of the house of David and replace him with the house of good for nothing. Since Ahaz refused to join their alliance, they, they concocted this plan. They plotted. 
They conspired to team up against Judah to conquer it and then to replace Ahaz with a puppet king, a good-for-nothing king who would lead Judah to join forces with them. You're not going to join us? We'll make, your, we'll make your country, your kingdom join us anyway. Look again what God said to Ahaz through Isaiah in verse 4. I love this. Calm down. Parents, have you ever, like, your kids are freaking out, spazzing all over the place, and you just look at them? Hey, calm down. Calm down. Relax. Take a breath. Right? Or maybe you get crazy and you tell them, knock it off. And then you need to calm down. God, to the king, calm down. Be quiet. Don't be afraid or, or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Razan and, and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Remember the language from Psalm 2 last week? God essentially told Ahaz here, hey, listen, these two nations, they're raging. They're raging. They're plotting in vain, however, because I have installed my king on the holy mountain. Ahaz, God says, you're trembling in fear. You're trembling in terror like forest trees shaking in the wind, but you are afraid of firewood that's about to burn out. Smoldering sticks. The rage of man does not put fear in the heart of God. And that's a really good thing for us. Nations rage and God laughs. We saw this last week in Psalm 2. He ridicules their plans because he reduces princes to nothing and he makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. God was not only aware of Ahaz's situation, he was fully in control of it. He was ruling over it. Remember, he's the king, the Lord of armies. Look at what he says in verse 7. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief of Damascus is Razan. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you, Ahaz, do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. God was giving Ahaz some much-needed perspective here, right? Ahaz was looking at the might of these two nations that were coming after him, and he was looking for strength in another nation. But God wanted him to see, listen, hey, nations are ruled by, by mere men. The capital of this nation is this city, and, and the, the, the guy in that city is this king. Everything can be funneled down, Ahaz. These nations are nothing. They're ruled by mere men. Notice that God didn't even mention Israel's king, Pekah, by name here. Why? This son of, of Remelia was a usurper who took the throne when it was not rightfully his. He took it in Israel by force. He didn't inherit the throne from his father. His father was a nobody. Pekah was a mere man who took the throne from a mere man. God told Ahaz that within a mere human lifespan, 65 years, Ephraim, a.k.a. Israel, would be too shattered to be a people. About 12 years after God spoke these words to Ahaz, through Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria and exiled from the promised land. The king of Assyria then imported, uh, imported foreigners to settle into the land, and over time they intermarried with the remaining Israelites, and their descendants became known as the Samaritans. We read this in, uh, in John chapter 4. And these Samaritans got to see the true king, God with us, the Messiah. God's, God's doing something. We could summarize God's message to Ahaz here in verses 7 through 9 like this. Ahaz, you are afraid of mere men, and you yourself are a mere man. But I am the sovereign God. I'm the king, Ahaz. I am the king, the Lord of armies. Don't worry about what these mere men are saying. Listen to what I am telling you. They have concocted this plan, and I guarantee you it will not happen. It will not happen. They think they got it but they don't have it. 
Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 says, The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Ahaz, my plans stand firm. Me, the king, the Lord of armies, my plans stand firm. So you need to stand firm in me. Ahaz, if you try to stand on anything or anyone else, you too will fall. God promised to preserve the throne of David, but if, but if Ahaz himself didn't trust God, then God would preserve David's throne through a different descendant. Ahaz, you're expendable. I'll keep my promise, but if you don't trust me, it won't be through you. God promised Ahaz that the kings of Aram and Israel would not be able to carry out their plans because God was carrying out his plan. Don't you wish, like we read this, don't you wish that that God would always be as specific with us as he was right here with Ahaz? Like that he would just tell us what's going to happen? We we get all all anxious, we get anxiety about something, and God just says, hey, listen, that's not going to happen. Calm down. Be quiet. Right? Or, Or, yeah, yeah. Get excited. This is going to happen. How great would it be if God just gave us a timeline of events in our lives? Feels like it would be a lot easier to trust him then, right? In these situations. But here's the thing. God's trustworthiness never changes. His trustworthiness never changes because it is who he is. God is trustworthy. And he never changes. His trustworthiness is not dependent upon the outcome of our situation, but we're prone to link those two things together, right? Maybe you've prayed and you've asked God to change your situation, but it feels like he's not even answering, let alone doing something about it. Maybe he has answered, but the answer that you want is, is not the thing that, that you want to hear. Or the, the answer that you want is not the answer that he gives you. Either way, it's easy then for us to feel like God has failed us. More often than not, we want to just say, show me and then I'll believe. We begin to question his trustworthiness. But God never promises that we will have a trouble-free life if we trust him. In fact, spoiler alert, we're going to see this as we move through John's gospel. He actually promises that our life on earth will be full of trouble because we trust him. And he doesn't promise to tell us his specific plans for each circumstance that we face. But he does promise, listen, he does promise promise to be with us in every circumstance that we face. And he does promise that no matter what specific situations we face, that he will work all things together for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, for his glory, for our good. And that purpose is to transform us into the image of his son. God's not required to answer all of our questions. He's not required to answer any of our questions. Go read the book of Job. You know what my favorite part about Job is? God didn't know him anything, and yet he came down, and he answered him. God was with Job. God does not have to answer any one of our questions, but we have to answer this one question. Will I trust him? Will I trust him? If we do not stand firm in God himself, then we will not stand firm at all. His warning to Ahaz is the same warning that we need to hear this morning. So we've seen the predicament and the promise. Now let's look at the proof. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Now, look at the compassion of God here. 
Look at the persistence of God here. He could have said, Ahaz, trust me, and left it at that. God owes no man anything. He's God. He's the king, the Lord of armies. He could have said, trust me, and left it at that. But he graciously met Ahaz in Ahaz's weakness. He offered proof that his promise was true. And as if he hadn't been gracious enough already, God offered to let Ahaz himself pick the sign that would prove God was going to keep his promise. And there were no restrictions. It could be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. No limitations, Ahaz. God was giving Ahaz carte blanche here. We've, we've all seen and heard these commercials on TV or the radio where it's like 20 seconds of the product and it sounds amazing. And then the announcer talks for like 90 miles an hour for the next two and a half minutes that fills in all the disclaimers that basically chips away at, at, at all of the promise that they just made you, right? God made no disclaimers for Ahaz. There's no fast talking here. Ahaz, I promise to do this. And you need a sign, so I'll give you one. Ask me. Ask me for one. We're often the ones that are begging God, aren't we? If you just give me a sign, you just give me a sign, any sign, I don't care what it is, give me a sign. But here it's God who told Ahaz, listen, I will give you a sign, any sign you pick. How'd you like to have that card in your back pocket? But how did Ahaz respond to God's offer? No way. He refused it. The Lord put the ball up on the tee for Ahaz, and he swung and a miss. Struck out. Ahaz has already made up his mind by this point. He had already taken gold and silver that belonged to God from his temple, and he offered it to the king of Assyria as a bribe for protection. Instead of standing firm in faith, Ahaz stood against the Lord. How, how bold and brazen is that? He's trembling at mere men, and he's, he's confronting the Lord himself. He took God's presence for granted. He tried to masquerade his treason with false piety by quoting the law that commands God's people not to test the Lord. Well, hold on. You're telling me to, to do this. This is a trick question, right? I will not test the Lord but he's already rejected the Lord. And Ahaz wasn't fooling God or God's prophet. Look at verse 13. Isaiah said, listen. Listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. There'll be an abundance in the land because everybody else is gone. For before the, the boy knows how to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you your people and your father's house such a time as has never been seen, as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. Here's what he will do. He will bring the king of Assyria. He will bring the king of Assyria. The phrase house of David is used again here in verse 13. Ahaz was not the only guilty king in Judah. No one from the house of David had yet proved themselves worthy of sitting on the throne forever. You can see that in your handout. Ahaz rejected God, so God rejected Ahaz. In verse 11, Isaiah told Ahaz, ask for a sign, any sign, from your God. But what did he say in verse 13? Will you try the patience of your God? No. Will you try the patience of my God? You had your chance, Ahaz but you've rejected him. Isaiah distanced himself and God from Ahaz, but God was not done with the house of David. He was not about to break his covenant promise. Instead, the Lord himself would give the house of David a sign. 
to prove his persistent faithfulness. See, a virgin, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, Christians throughout history have differed on the exact interpretation of this particular part of the passage. I'm certainly not going to settle any arguments here, but it seems as if it's likely that there's both a near fulfillment in view here and a far fulfillment in view here. And by that, I mean there was probably an actual boy in Ahaz's lifetime or shortly after who was named Emmanuel and was a visible sign, a visible sign in, in, in uh, much of the same way that Sheer Jashub is a visible sign. But the sign also pointed to someone greater yet to be born who would fully um, embody the meaning of the name. For Ahaz, this sign turned out to be one of judgment. But by, by the time the boy learned to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the two kings, those smoldering sticks, the, and the, the, these nations that Ahaz feared would be reduced to nothing. Now that's good news for Ahaz, right? Because that's what he was afraid of to begin with. But Ahaz himself chose what was bad and rejected what was good. And as a result, the one whom Ahab ran to for protection would be the one that God would use to bring punishment on Ahaz and the people of Judah and the house of David. We'll see next week that Assyria doesn't, doesn't end up conquering Judah. Babylon will later. But they definitely do some damage. 2 Chronicles 28, 19 through 21, again, fills in some gaps for us. For the Lord humbled Judah because of King Ahaz of Judah, who threw off restraint in Judah and was unfaithful to the Lord. Then King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came against Ahaz. He oppressed him and he did not give him support. What Ahaz wanted from the earthly king, he got the opposite Although Ahaz plundered the Lord's temple and the palace of the king and the rulers uh, of the rulers and gave the plunder to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. For Ahaz, Emmanuel was a sign of judgment. For the faithful remnant of God's people, Emmanuel is a sign of great hope. And that hope was ultimately fulfilled in a son born to a virgin a little over 700 years later, after both kingdoms were wiped out and it felt like God had abandoned his promise to David and his family. In Matthew 1, 18 through 23, Matthew, the gospel writer, writes this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together, a.k.a. while she was still a virgin, that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had, cons had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Calm down. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to, this, to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Remember John chapter 1? John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, <coughs> excuse me, the glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, he's invisible, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. He is the true descendant from the house of David who always chooses what is good and always rejects what is bad. He is the rightful heir to the eternal throne. He was born into this world not to save us from earthly kings and nations, but to save us from our sin that separates us from the presence of God. And he came to reconcile us to God so that we could live with God forever in his kingdom. 
Christ accomplished that salvation for us in his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. He was the faithful son, obeying perfectly every command of God the Father. And though he was already king of the cosmos, Jesus made himself weak for our sake by taking our sin upon himself and dying on the cross to free us from our delusions of strength. The Father's righteous wrath was poured out on Christ so that he could pour out God's forgiving and redeeming grace on us. Jesus died and he was buried and after three days in the tomb, he rose from the dead. The Emmanuel was no longer present in the tomb. He got up and he walked out so that he could be present with his people forever. God is with us. God is with us. After Jesus ascended into heaven to resume his place on the throne, he and the Father together sent the Holy Spirit to live in, to dwell in every believer so that the very presence of God will be with us forever. We'll read about this in John 14 through 16. The Holy Spirit is proof of God's promise to never leave us or forsake us no matter what predicament we are in ourselves. He enables us to stand firm in faith that the God whom we cannot see is nearer to us than anyone or anything else will ever be. And the Spirit enables us to do that by pointing us over and over again to Emmanuel, God with us, Christ himself. See, there's no greater way to understand God with us than to look to Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel. And as believers who have the living God living in us, we must then make it a priority to help each other look less intently at our circumstances and more intently at Christ. We do that by being present with one another, opening God's word together, Encouraging one another with the promises that we find there. Praying together according to these promises and worshiping God together in response to his faithful presence and his promises in our lives. And we do all those things not just once a week on a Sunday morning. We make that the regular daily rhythm of our lives with one another so that it becomes more and more difficult for us to take God's presence for granted. And as we rejoice in God's nearness to us, we recognize that there are still people that are far from him. And so we witness to the nearness of God, God with us in Jesus Christ. We witness to those who are far from God and without hope in this world. And we do that by being present in their lives, present with those who are lost, by listening to them as they share their struggles and hardships, by loving them even when they choose what is bad and reject what is good because we ourselves once chose what is bad and rejected what is good. And we do that by telling them the gloriously good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray that the spirit who dwells in us, God present with us, would transform their hearts and take up residence in them as they put their faith in Jesus. Is God with you? Is God with you? Have you put your faith in Christ or are you running to, to someone or something else for security? Don't put your trust in mere man. There's plenty of examples in scripture that, that says that goes really poorly. Trust instead in the one true king, the Lord of armies, who will never relinquish his throne and joyfully welcomes all into his kingdom who humble themselves and confess their need for him. Sin and death are enemies that drive fear into the hearts of mankind. They conspire together to, to, do, uh, to, to get us to do their bidding. And they cause us to shake like forest trees in the wind. But we need to understand that sin and death are smoldering sticks to God day is coming when God will exile sin and death along with all who remain in rebellion against him, but for the faithful remnant that he has preserved, this is what we have to look forward to. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and we will live with him. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. God will keep his promise. Jesus took on flesh and he came to us, God with us, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives, trembling like forest trees in the wind, shaking in fear of death. Why not turn from your sins and trust in this, this God, this Christ, this Emmanuel, the one who persistently draws near to us? God is never absent in the life of a believer. His presence with us is guaranteed forever. Oftentimes we're more impacted by our present circumstances than we are by the God who is present with us in them. And that is why we must continually look to Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and his faithful presence with us should lead us to an ever-deepening trust in him. We may not know his plan for each of the circumstances that we face. We don't even know the circumstances ahead of time. But he has revealed to us his plan for the end of all things. And when that final day comes, until that final day comes, we have this glorious promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's with us. Emmanuel, may he give us the grace that we need so that we don't take his presence for granted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so persistent in your grace to come to us when we make every effort to run from you. We thank you for giving us Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, for putting your spirit in us, for giving us your church and your word, grace that keeps us guarded by your power until we get to see you and be with you forever. We love you and we thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.